You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about uh, our friends at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. They are back because applications are open again for their Master's in New Arts Journalism program. It is a fantastic program. You can learn all about it at saic.edu slash longform. The deadline is February 1st, but start working on it because if you want to write criticism, there is no better place in the world than the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Go check it out. saic.edu slash longform. Here is the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. Here I am with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hi. Here I am in this physical space. I am, I am present here. <laughs> uh, who are you present with for this week's episode? For this week's episode, I spoke to Michael Barbaro, who is the host of The Daily. It's a podcast put out by the New York Times. It comes out every weekday. Putting our show to shame. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Working considerably harder. It's, uh, it's a pretty new podcast. It's, only, it's less than a year old. It has an enormous following uh, and a pretty rabid following. And I wanted to talk to Michael about the transition from being a reporter at the Times, which he was for many years, to being this host, sort of the ins and outs of how the podcast works and the style that they have with it. And uh, it turned out he was really fun to talk to. I got to say, I'm not surprised that he was fun to talk to. He seems like a good talker. One thing to note about this episode, we recorded it a couple weeks ago. So The Daily covers breaking news. They've covered a lot of breaking news since we recorded this. Some things may not be mentioned in the podcast that are very significant events since that time. If you're trying to get your message out every day, you're going to be sending a lot of email, and you're going to need an email provider like MailChimp, who makes it easy. They support the show. Thanks, MailChimp. Now here's Evan with Michael Barbaro. I'm going to test this one more time because because we're using your mics and my recorder. So tell me something. Anything? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just thinking how whenever I go into my therapist's office on Tuesday mornings, I take off my watch or whatever I'm, you know, mm. whatever kind of any, anything I'm wearing that feels like it's kind of armor mm-hmm. and also that might bang on the table and make a distraction. Uh-huh. And I'm for some reason just now realizing <laughs> that I do that when I walk into his, the, my therapist's office on Tuesday. And I also do when I walk into the studio. And I think there's a little bit of an analogy there of like, all right, let's get comfortable. Let's take off the, the layers. Yeah. 
You're you're literally disarming. Yeah, I think so. Which I think has an interesting meaning when I think about some of the interviews we do. Yeah. Um, all right, now we are taping. Good. So I will go ahead and say, Michael Barbaro, welcome to the show. Thank you, Evan. I think we have to get disclosures out of the way. Please. First in this particular one. Uh, you are the host of The Daily here yeah. at The New York Times. We are in your studio. And you work with my wife on that show. So this is not a yeah. what we would call objective journalism. Your wife is one of my bosses. Let's just put a, let's just put a period at the end of the sentence. Well, uh, so have you been ordered? Are you here? Uh, no. No, in fact. <laughs> are you here of your own volition? Completely. Completely. I felt no pressure whatsoever. You asked me to come on and it was only later that that Samantha expressed understanding of that fact. <laughs> okay. Well, so with that out of the way, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to, to talk to you is that if we had talked a little bit more than a year ago, let's say July of 2016, I would have been talking to you solely as a newspaper reporter. Yeah. What is that like? How do you do it? But now I'm so interested in, and partly because I've had an up-close look at it, and partly because I listen to The Daily every day, of this sort of transition into right. this new role. And also, it's fascinating to me the way that The Daily has taken off and the way people interact with it. So I kind of want to get into that, but I thought maybe we would start by just laying some groundwork of how you got into newspapers. Yeah. And partly I know you sort of like grew up in love with newspapers I did. in a way. But tell me how that – how did that come about? When I, when I was growing up in Connecticut, just outside New Haven, which is where, where I ended up going to college, my, my whole young adult life was experienced on one long avenue between a town called North Haven and New Haven, the uh -huh. city where Yale is based, Whitney Avenue. And I often thought about that, how small my world was. I grew up – just off that street, Whitney Avenue. Uh -huh. uh, my sister worked on the Dairy Queen on that avenue. My synagogue was on that avenue. My high school was on that avenue. And then if you took Whitney Avenue all the way down to the middle of downtown New Haven, Yale was there, the college where I went to. So that was 18 years of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a friend in the neighborhood where I grew up who had a paper route. And his partner in the paper route went away. And he wanted me to replace him. So suddenly I'm helping him deliver newspapers seven days a week at 6 a.m. Then this guy moves away and I need a partner to help do the newspaper route. And so I recruited my sister who's older, Tracy. And so for three or four years, my sister and I, and I was, she was in middle school. I was a little bit younger. We got up every morning together at 5.50 a.m. and we delivered newspapers, the mm -hmm. New Haven Register. And that was where my relationships with newspapers began. And it's a pretty intimate relationship with a newspaper to wake up every morning and take off the plastic of the bundle, take the little piece of yellow, you know, which like you learn all these great skills and how to take yeah, all these things you apart. You do a certain number in a, in a minute. Exactly. Yeah. And then you have to take on the Sunday paper, which became an entire family ordeal of uh, either my mother or my father, sometimes both helping us. We had an assembly line in our garage of all the sections. You had to like lay one section into another, into another. And at the end, you roll it up and you put it in the trunk of the family station wagon, which was a Subaru. And we would then get in the station wagon. And when we reached the street where we delivered the newspapers, the station wagon hatchback would be open. And my one of my parents would drive very slowly and we would go to the back of the trunk, get the newspaper, deliver it, keep going back You're and walking forth. walking behind? This slow-moving car, uh -huh. yeah. On the weekdays, we could do it ourselves. But this seems like... This story could go a completely different directions, which is that you despise newspapers and wanted nothing to do with them. Why did that lead you to then 
great question. Two, there's two reasons why that experience was was very positive for me. One was that the process of opening the newspaper, it feels like mythology to describe it this way, but I love the act of of essentially breaking open the news every day. Like I, in my mind as a little kid, like I was delivering the news to people and mm-hmm. I was the first person to see it. I mean, they were really big news days. I want to say that during this time period, one of the wars in Iraq was going on or starting. And it the, must've been the first Gulf War. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, big news days, big mornings, you're cracking open the paper, you're smelling the paper. It's very tactile. It's very visceral. Your hands are literally like covered in like news ink by the end of the morning. And, Reason number two is I really loved interacting with the subscribers. And I think it started to feel like the first adult set of interactions I was having outside of my family life. Every Sunday, my sister and I had to walk the same route mm-hmm. and get people to pay for the newspaper. Oh. And these turned into oddly intimate relationships. There's old women who were really lonely, and we were their interactions on Sunday nights. And these were real relationships. I remember one of the women, she was a widow. She wanted me to help her do gardening. She wanted me to help her take care of her house. She wanted me to help her replant her husband's grave flower bed. And it just That's it just was a re- it was a real set of relationships and I I loved those relationships. I like I said it starts to feel like an adult. And so it wasn't just about delivering the newspaper. It was about it was about the sense of community and within a few years I was actually an intern at the newspaper that I had delivered the New Haven Register. And that was a cool heady experience to be working at the local newspaper. I was still in high school. And from there, just a succession of internships. I never, I never stopped working for for a newspaper after basically my sophomore year in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and you come, your your parents were both. You come from a blue collar family. Yeah, yeah. My father uh, was a firefighter in New Haven, Connecticut. My mother is a school librarian in a nearby town called Newington, Connecticut, outside Hartford. And my father's relationship to New Haven also became interesting to me when I when I got to college and I started to become a reporter at the college newspaper, the Yale Daily News. A lot of the college newspaper reporters gravitated towards the most prestigious beats there, which were always covering like the Yale president, the Yale you know dean of students. My interest was always with the city. Mm-hmm. And so I covered City Hall and that's all I wanted to do. And because my father was a firefighter in New Haven at the time, I had a different relationship with the city and right. and whether it was credibility or or interest somehow it really made it easier and more interesting for me to cover all that stuff. So I could say to the mayor of New Haven, who I get to interview, you know, my father is one of your employees. And it, it gave me a legitimacy that I think a lot of Yale students passing through town from outside didn't have as a, as a journalist and I had a great investment in the city. Mm-hmm. Um and a different relationship with the college as a result, my, you know, going to Yale is of course prestigious and it was an extremely wonderful development in my life. To my father, Yale students were kids who didn't understand how their fireplaces worked. And he was a firefighter uh, at a firehouse at one point in his career, right around the corner from Yale. And he would tell me stories about Yale students not understanding that there was no flu and this wasn't a real fireplace. And so the firemen would have to come to Yale and put out these these smoke fires. Yeah. So my father was was somebody who who reminded me in a quite appropriate and humbling way about the imbalances of Yale students. Mm-hmm. So how did your first, was the, the Washington Post your first uh, after college job or how did that come about? How did you actually get your sort of like it's a great, big real That's a great question. Job? And I think, I think that story of how I got to the Washington Post to me reflects in many ways how powerful and life-changing it was for me to go to a college like Yale and to understand 
how a, an admission like that can change the course of an entire life, uh, I have to explain who Bob Kaiser is. He is the former managing editor of the Washington Post. Mm. And and I tell this story with a little bit of conflictedness because it is about opportunity and how it works at a place like Yale. So I work my, my way through the Yale Daily News and it is senior year and the recruiter from the Washington Post comes and does a bunch of formal interviews with newspaper reporters. Um, I'd gotten to know very well the administrative assistant at the Yale Daily News, the permanent person who really kind of ran the place while the students cycled through and thought they were running the place. Her name was Susan. She went to the same synagogue on Whitney Avenue that I did. So uh, she and I got very, very close. And Bob Kaiser likes to tell his story at the end of doing all these interviews. And mine was kind of rough with him. I didn't feel like I had much of a shot of getting an internship at the Washington Post after this interview with, with Bob. He sort of pointed to people who had longer, more interesting resumes and had applied before. As the story goes, he, at the end of all these interviews, turns to Susan and says, all right, who should I, who should I really be hiring here as an intern? And to her enormous credit, and I owe her, in some ways, my career, both of them, she said, Michael, you should be hiring Michael as your, as your, as your summer intern. So Bob Kaiser picked me to be the, uh, one of the interns at the Washington Post uh, that summer after I graduated from college. And that was the most, that was the, when I think of the pipeline of, of kind of things that happened in my career, that was among the most pivotal. Yeah. Was, was being able to start in journalism as a financial reporter at the Washington Post at the age of 22. So being a, you know, like local kid, like the townie kid who, who went to the Ivy League school and then like made this leap to the Washington Post, there's a lot of discussion about newspapers being, they used to be this more sort of like yeah. working class uh, environment yeah. and now they are more of an Ivy League environment. And did you find yourself in any way like fish out of water when you got to the post or did you feel like these are my people? I think what you're saying is right that I think the, there's a bit of an identity crisis at some of the, these newspapers were including the one we're sitting in right now, the New York Times of kind of, you know, questions around class and race diversity in, in these newsrooms. And I see myself I hope fairly, maybe a little unfairly, as kind of a bridge figure, you know, the, the son of a, a of a librarian, a firefighter who was lucky enough to have gone to Yale and gotten into this extraordinary journalistic pipeline of the of the college newspaper there, the Yale Daily News, and then get an internship with the Washington Post and then find my way to the New York Times. And I never felt like I was a true Ivy League student. To me, I was as much a townie as I was a gownie. Those were the phrases that we used, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in New Haven. You were town or you were gown. And I like every day I inhabit a little bit of both of those. And I don't think I've ever let go of that bit of, of kind of conflict, whether it's about uh, being at Yale, being at the Washington Post, being at the Times. Mm -hmm. And you covered I, – I always try to go back and read everyone's old work. And with magazine writers, it's often very easy. Like I can read almost everything that they read. Yeah. Like, I have to read a bunch of Michael's stories. And you covered Walmart for – a couple of years yeah. at the Post and then at the Times, you wrote an insane, extraordinary. I mean, not for a newspaper reporter, probably, but like there were. You wrote a lot of stories about Walmart. I did. You know more about Walmart, or at least the Walmart of two thousand eight or something, than probably most uh, people. Did you approach it like from a position, a, a position of sort of ambition? Like, if I crush this beat, I can get a better beat, even though I don't really want to be writing about Walmart. Or did you find yourself 
completely fascinated with Walmart and just like, okay, I if this is my thing, like, I love it. I became completely fascinated by Walmart. I mean, it was it, it's a completely fascinating story. Yeah. So to bring to catch you up on the chronology, Bob Kaiser lets me come to the Washington Post, and I didn't want to be a financial reporter at all. I was, it, it felt like. I was being asked to do something I didn't know enough about and I wasn't all that comfortable with. And I'd always imagined myself covering government, mm-hmm. city government, just mm-hmm. like I had in college. And it was David Leonhardt, who's a now a columnist at the Times, who had gone to the same college, uh, who I called when I got that internship. And I said, David, uh, the Washington Post has, asked, has hired me to be an intern. That's the good news. The bad news for me is they want me to be a financial reporter. I, I have no background. This feels weird and not comfortable to me. And he said, oh, no, 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 you're, you're, this is what you have to understand. Financial reporting is just like – is no different than any other kind of reporting. But it will actually give you the discipline of understanding a little bit of math, a little bit of business, and how the world really works. I took that internship and became the retail reporter. Just happened. It was not sexy work. A lot of the coverage I was doing was of the two major local grocery chains mm-hmm. in Washington. So I was covering the really, you know – sexy business of local grocery store labor negotiations and competition between, you know, local department stores. And it was around that moment that Walmart had become such a big deal nationally, internationally, that two groups in Washington had been formed, two labor-backed groups to literally upend the company. I mean, their job was to, through kind of guerrilla public relations tactics find ways to disrupt Walmart on behalf of its mortal enemy at that moment, unionized retail workers, mm-hmm. especially unionized grocery store workers. And through one of like life's great quirks and coincidences, I was a local retail reporter at the Washington Post, which meant that when these two unionized groups were formed and wanted to take on Walmart, they were two blocks away from me. And I got to know them both really well. And that was what I did for the next five years. And some of those stories, a lot of the stories I did were based on leaked records that were coming out of Walmart. There was one, there was one extraordinary story that I was involved in with Steve Greenhouse, who, who has uh, just left the Times, where I happened to be in Bentonville. I went all the time. I got to really know the executives. And I was inside Walmart's headquarters when one of these union-backed labor groups sent us an email with a, with a very fat document attached to it. And the subject line, which I'll never forget, was Merry Christmas. And it wasn't the holiday season. And this was an internal board of directors memo suggesting all the ways that Walmart could cut costs, mostly on the backs of its workers, including by asking its overweight workers to do things that might help them lose weight, like push carts in the parking lot. Mm. It, was, it was just on paper, it was really problematic, offensive, stuff. And because I was inside Walmart headquarters, I asked someone to help me print out the document. They didn't know what they were printing out. And then I walked the memo over to the woman who wrote it, who was the head of human resources for the world's largest company, and said, I have this memo, and we're going to be writing about it. And I was promptly escorted out of the corporate headquarters. And I went over to like a Kinko's and we ended up writing the rest of the story. And it was a, it was a real breakthrough kind of story. But that kind of coverage was what defined what I did, especially at the New York Times, when I was covering Walmart. Mm-hmm. And so then you shifted into politics, first like city, covering City Hall and and then the Romney campaign. Yeah. So I should tell you why I started to cover the the Bloomberg administration. At a certain point, covering retail didn't feel 
right anymore. And this kind of old instinct all the way back to New Haven when I was covering the mayor of New Haven kind of kicked back in. And in a way, it was like going right back to that. I, I, mm. want, I was like, I want to cover city government. And so I went to uh, the Metro editor at the New York Times, Joe Sexton, and I just said, I, I want to cover the mayor of New York City, Mike mm. Bloomberg, who is such a big personality. The mayor was a much tougher nut to crack. He doesn't really want to meet with the reporters covering him very much. He didn't at the time. But I did have some success by the end getting to to really meet with him. And it was – I felt really good by the end of of his term as mayor because I ended up getting to go to Baltimore with him to visit Johns Hopkins, which he'd given like a billion dollars to the school. Um, in the arc of a relationship, by the end, I got to take a long walk around like the college campus where he went to school and like have him reflect on his life and his career and like – and that was another moment where I was like, all right. What's next? Yeah, I mean, it felt like it. we sort of cracked, <laughs> we'd cracked the, the nut there, and it was it, could, it was time to move on. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Michael and Evan on hold for just a second and uh, tell you about the sponsors who are making this program possible this week. First up, our old friends at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, specifically their Masters in New Arts Journalism. It's a two-year program in Chicago where you learn how to write about the arts learn how to be a critic. There are almost no programs like this in the country. If you want to learn how to write about the arts and learn how to write about them today, like on the internet where people will read you, uh, the Masters in New Arts Journalism program at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago is your best bet. You're going to spend two years in the beautiful city of Chicago. You're going to learn not just how to write, but you're going to learn how to use all the Adobe stuff. You're going to learn how to code HTML, CSS. The school has relationships with a bunch of art institutions in town. Uh, they got a relationship with the Chicago Tribune, so you're going to be able to intern and learn from the best. And you're also just going to be hanging out in Chicago, which is a uh, fantastic town, not a bad place to spend two years. The deadline for the program is February 1st, and uh, I suggest you go check it out. You can learn more at saic.edu slash longform. Again, that's saic.edu slash longform. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. It is wonderful to have them back. Also sponsoring the show this week, Blinkist. The world's most successful people all have one thing in common. They're hungry for knowledge, reading and learning every chance they get. And since you're listening to this podcast, you probably feel the same way. Introducing the Blinkist app. Over 2,000 best-selling nonfiction books transformed into powerful packs you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. Learn essential ideas from the best books in your field or subjects you never knew you loved, like productivity, business, science, with Blinkist, you can feast your mind on key ideas from best-selling nonfiction books like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The 4-Hour Workweek, Tim Ferriss, listen to his uh, long-form podcast, and Thinking Fast and Slow, all on your way home, more knowledge in less time. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash longform, get a free trial or three months off your yearly plan when you join today. That's Blinkist. B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash long form to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. Blinkist.com slash long form. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Evan and Michael. Well, it feels like uh, from what I know about shifting into first doing the run-up podcast and then what eventually like turned into the daily in some ways or you shifted into the daily that you were in the middle of 
a national politics reporting career development. Mm-hmm. So you'd covered the Romney campaign and then it seemed like you were starting to cover the Trump campaign in the same way and you had this yeah. sort of famous or infamous interaction with Trump where you wrote about him and then he asked you to resign yes. on Twitter. It's worth at least uh, exploring what it felt like to be specifically called out by a presidential candidate and asked to resign your job. I mean, now I feel like we're so immersed it's su- in... It sucks. Yeah. I mean, it's not a pleasant experience. A couple, after that happened, people asked me if that was some kind of a badge of honor. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely not. No. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly traumatic thing to be asked to resign by anybody. I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm admittedly sensitive enough that if I got an email from a regular reader saying I should resign, like, it could, it could dent my day. But for the almost Republican nominee to do that was, yeah, it was, it was really unpleasant because, of course, it encouraged a lot of online, you know, deepening of that sentiment by his followers. But I, I look, I'm the, I was the least, in some ways, targeted reporter at the Times by yeah. Trump. That was a bit of a one-off. I mean, reporters, especially female reporters, bore the absolute brunt of, of the way that that campaign ran. So it was a pretty contained episode. The story that I worked on with Megan Toohey was – a colleague of mine was a was a, a deep look at the way Trump relates to, interacts with, deals with women, especially in his business and his private life. And he reacted very strongly to the piece. I think he saw it as a as something that in some way might imperil his reputation. And so he he came after for both of us and came after the Times and I think threatened to to sue the Times, but never followed through with that threat. And when he said, you know, when he happened to say in a in a tweet that I that I should resign. It by then felt like a familiar tactic of his to mm. to attack the news media. So when someone first came to you and suggested that you should do audio or maybe you'd be interested in doing audio, were you r- resistant at first? Did you want to stick on the reporting beat that you were on and did it seem like a risk? It was not presented as something that felt risky to me and that may be because of the form that it took. The, the run-up, which was the first show that we created – uh, was going to be twice a week for the last three months of the campaign. And the way it was presented to me was, you can still write a couple times a week, maybe more. Actually, the way it was presented was, you can still write every day. And you can also put out this this podcast, the, the run-up. I think we underestimated how much work it was going to be. I underestimated how much work it was going to be to put out a show twice a week that was as carefully put together as the run-up. So my writing and podcasting became much more of a balancing act, much more of a 50-50 balancing act mm-hmm. during the end of the campaign. And when we started the run-up, we'd go into the studio and we would just try things out. You know, what, 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 is, the, what is the voice of the show? And yeah. we would do an interview. And, and sometimes we'd do an interview and we would just turn to each other and say, well, that was really boring. Or, that didn't really work. Or like, th- this sound isn't quite working. So we just kept practicing and trying. And, and pretty quickly came upon a voice that was curious and generous and going to hold listeners' hand through really complicated things and have a lot of great sound and voice. and that, But that primarily, because all that's great, but that primarily was going to find a way to transform the intelligence and the authority and the thoughtfulness of New York Times reporters, their humor, the way they interact with each other, the real warmth and relationships that we have between us and transform that into audio. I mean, that's the special sauce 
of both the run-up and now the daily is the fact that Times journalists are in- incredibly plugged into what they do, that it's their life's work, that it's a calling, that it's not just like a nine-to-five thing they do, and that they really like each other. So how different is that voice, the voice that you developed that's now the voice of the daily? How different is that voice, not just the voice of the show, but when you're interviewing someone, there's a particular style that I think listeners have really, they've really grabbed onto. Like they they know you're you're like, hmm, has become yeah. like a thing that people write about and write appreciations. Of and yeah, that's strange. Up. How different <laughs> is that from if I heard you, a tape of you interviewing someone for a print piece? Is it, is it I basically think it would, the same? I think it would be the same. I think I, I think my hmms and uh, uh, those sounds I make are the sounds I've made forever. I, I make those sounds when I'm reading a book, which I've only realized now. When, I, when like I get to a great passage or something really interesting in, a, in an article or in a book – I, that's the sound I make, you know, the sound of kind of joy and discovery and interest. And it's so f- it's very interesting to me that these sounds are things that people think about because I haven't thought about them. So now I'm being forced to think about them in a way I haven't. Yeah. And I think part of it is that I'm a self-conscious person and that if I were talking to me for a long time, I would want to be affirmed a bunch. And so I might be doing that as my own instinct to make someone feel more comfortable during a a, a long conversation. But then does the fact that there is now a sort of public feedback when it comes to the way you talk and the way you approach Mm -hmm. the show, does that make you self-conscious at another level where you you are paying attention to how many times you're doing that? Or The only thing – there's a very small thing I've become a little self-conscious about, which is – and to explain this, I have to explain – a major reason why I talk the way I do, which is my grandfather, Alan Rosenberg. So I don't use a lot of the small little interjections that people accidentally use all the time in, in their in their mode of speech when they're trying to fill space, which is um or you know or that kind of thing. Like. These like. And that's not because I am like – that's not because <laughs> – there it was. It's not because I'm high-minded about it and I've given it a lot of thought. It's because when I was a little kid, my grandfather would constantly interrupt me when I did those things and say, don't do that. And he had all these funny, sarcastic ways of cutting those out of my speech. If you said, you know, in front of my grandfather, he would turn to you and say, no, I don't know. And if you said the word cool, he would say, do you mean like warm? Is it cool or is it warm? And you'd say, no, no, Gramps, I didn't mean it that way. Okay, well, you should you should say what you mean. And in some ways, that is a traumatic thing to do to a young person, so I don't recommend it. But it had the long-term impact of me not wanting to ever do that because he would, it would, I'd get tripped up by him and he would interrupt. And so I stopped using those kinds of verbal tics and they're not part of my way of speaking. So what happens when... I'm thinking about something is that you hear just utter silence. You actually pause. Yeah, I pause. And listeners pick up on that. Now, sometimes my pauses are too long. And when we're in the editing, a little secret is that I'll say, oh, geez, Barbaro, finish the fucking thought. And so we will occasionally cut the space between those. That happens. There's an admission. Because it can be distracting. Well, also, I think for people who are now conditioned in a way, have listened to the show a lot – they can mean different things. I mean, we should talk a little bit about 
the sort of emotion of the show. And there's been a lot made of times when you've gotten a little bit emotional on mm-hmm. the show. And it feels like now it becomes meaningful. If a pause is very long, someone might think in the context of a certain interview. Then I'm falling apart. That you are <laughs> taking a minute to gather yourself. Like right. that seems like a possible outcome. But how much sort of like intellectual thought goes into using that stuff? Like let's take the coal miners like the obvious yeah. example. I know you've talked about it in different forums. But, you know, how much did you sit down and say, okay, are we going to use this or are we going to not? Or we was it a sort it. of given? We talked about what we would use from that interview the coal miner interview was pretty singular. It was very unique in that the person we had on was such a powerful interview, and I don't think we expected it. I remember that day really well. I, we wanted to do the second half of a show about about the EPA under Scott Pruitt, mm-hmm. and a colleague of mine had done an interview with a bunch of coal miners. So I, I called this colleague and said, who's the best coal miner for audio that you interviewed? And he recommended Mark Gray. And I called Mark Gray, did a very quick interview with him and just to get a sense of his voice and his personality. Had no sense that it was going to be a, a particularly persuasive or compelling interview. But that his, he just sounded like somebody who would, who would be great to talk to about his work in the coal mining industry. And then we get on the phone with him and the reporter just kind of gives us his phone number. And then kind of in that case, that was the end of the interaction with the reporter. And... Then we sit in the studio and we call Mark Gray. And just from the very beginning, when Mark Gray started to talk about the work he did and the pride he took in it, uh, I could feel myself being really drawn into him as a human being, as like a figure in a very fast-changing industry and economy, as somebody who was very resistant to basically the the dominant narrative about the place of coal in our economy and, and as something that was hurting the environment. And you know, for, for about 45 minutes, we just we talked as real human beings. And I think the interview, as it progressed, became more and more about Mark Gray just saying, I don't think you understand the work I do. Do you understand the work I do? And it's when he turned the interview around on me and asked me if I'd ever been to a coal mine that that I became emotional. And I've tried to figure out what happened there several times. And I think the answer is pretty simple. I mean, he just moved me. And he was really gracious. He was really proud of his career. And I felt when he started to ask me questions, regardless of how you feel about the coal industry and about what it's what it's doing to the air. And that's not insignificant. When he turned the interview around on me and asked me questions, I felt exposed in a very powerful way because I think we approach a lot of these subjects with incredibly natural but simple assumptions. Mm-hmm. And I had I certainly had them. I think a lot of listeners probably did. And here was just an incredibly human version of that conversation with a guy who's dying from an industry that's polluting our air, but who is so proud of the work and said he would go back and do it all over again. And do you really know what my life is like? And do you really know what the work is like? And have you ever been to a coal mine? And I, yeah, I got very, very emotional about that. I think it had something to do with the campaign we had just been through too. And what we learned about what we didn't know about the country and its politics and how it felt. I think a lot of things were kind of swirling and then that interview came together 
for me. And I don't think the daily should ever be my therapy session. <laughs> That's not what it's meant to be. But I'm a human being and I arrive at work on a random Tuesday and I do an interview with a guy like that and it just it just punched me right in the stomach and so I felt things. And we had a discussion about what was the right level of emotion to share with listeners about that interview. And we made a decision that it was okay to tell people what I felt in that interview. And people had really strong reactions to it. Some people felt it was a breath of fresh air to just listen to someone. Other people felt that you cannot in good conscience have a discussion with a coal miner about their work and the pride that they take in their work without holding them accountable for the damage that their work does. I think we struck the right balance in that interview and in that episode, which was the first half of which was about the environment. But there was some segment of the listenership that, that didn't agree with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were so many, I feel like there were so many angles at which people could respond to it. And it was so fascinating as an audio experience, particularly because I'm sure New York Times reporters witness and speak to all sorts of situations and individuals that cause them to get emotional, but they don't write in the story. At this point, the reporter right. uh, needed to gather him or herself. Like that doesn't surface in the newspaper in the way that you could viscerally yeah. hear it. But then I thought the other interesting thing was I think there was a way to for people to interpret it that you were becoming upset because you're an elite uh, newspaper reporter from New York, like went to an Ivy League school and you don't understand these people and you were like called out on it. But if you know more about you, which I did I think a little later, like about your father being a firefighter, I thought it was more like what if someone had done a story about your right. father, a firefighter, saying firefighters was bad and had never right. – didn't know them, hadn't experienced I, them, I like think, that sort of thing. Yeah. And you're – it's funny. As you're even starting to say all this, you're, you're going to get me emotional. Oh. I think uh, – I think I think the interview was incredibly complicated and without turning this into a therapy session, I think that you're on to something that I think that, that Mark Gray was a lot of people for me uh, in my personal life and in my professional life and and that that's – part of what made it such an emotional interview. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about was revealing personal details about yourself mm -hmm. in these interviews. So there's one like specific time when you've done this where you mentioned your husband mm -hmm. in the interview or maybe it was in the context of the story. Yeah. And I'm sure that just happens naturally when you experience that this is a time when you, you have something to say yeah. about yourself. But did you have reservations afterwards seeing the extent to which people did People notice it. Like people pick up on it. They so do. Did you, did that make you say I'm actually going to be more careful than I? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned the fact that I that I'm married and that I'm, that I'm a husband in an interview with one of our reporters in France because uh, my spouse Tim speaks French, and it, it just came very naturally to me to, to 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 basically apologize to him for how badly I was about to mangle the pronunciation of the candidates for the French presidency, and I didn't think too much about what that would mean. I think on some level I understood that that I was offering a little bit of myself in that moment. And when we sit and we edit the show, you know, we think about things like that. But it just was what it was. It was casual. It was conversation. And to see people latch on to those details, yes, tells me that that I need to be thoughtful about that. That again – not again. I hate the word again in audio. Note to self. Again, <laughs> not useful. Um, <laughs> it's your grandfather who's actually saying that to you. 
Again, is a really quirky thing in audio. People say it because they're used to regular conversations. But through editing, the antecedent moment may evaporate, and the again is useless to all of those who want to think about how much we can overthink things. The challenge is being myself, which is a person who shares. Uh, I don't think overshares, but shares. And being the host of a show, it's not about me. I happen to be the host of The Daily. The Daily is about New York Times journalism in audio form. And listeners, I think, now expect me to be a candid, emotionally open figure, and I have to figure out how much of that involves me talking about my life. I think it's pretty little. Uh, I don't think people are all that interested in me, and I am candidly not quite certain what the balance is. And do these interviews feel different to you than than interviews you did for stories before? Like, let's take a different example, like uh, Derek Black, the the former former white supremacist yeah. who left. And, you know, I'd even read stories about him. The Post had profiled him in a, in a really good story, but it was a completely different experience for me to hear that mm-hmm. interview. And how are you experiencing that relative to how you used to do reporting? I feel like what we do on the daily is the kind of experience a reporter might have with the subject in the room they're interviewing. And then they go back to the office. I went back to the office and I sat down and I would write the story. It's really hard to replicate the emotion of that moment in a piece. I mean, there are gifted journalists who can do it, but you're not going to be hearing it and experiencing the emotion and the sound and the voice and and the mood the way you are in audio, the two of us sitting here right now doing this. And so there was a moment during the run-up where I first really understood this. We were interviewing one of the women who said that Donald Trump had uh, physically assaulted her, who said that when she was on a plane ride many decades ago, he reached over and and touched her. And I remember thinking during that interview with her in her apartment on the Upper East Side, like, if people could hear this woman's voice and know what it's like in this room. At that point, I was the host of the run-up. So I had a different set of instincts. And I remember thinking to myself, like, there's just no way that the print story can convey this. Mm -hmm. And we actually sent a video team I asked to arrange to get a video team to come and interview her uh, the next day, and that all started to capture who she was. But by the time the end of the campaign rolled around, it felt to me like there was no substitute for these kind of live interactions where you're, you're discovering how you feel as you feel it, and then the listener is discovering it with you, and they're feeling it, or they're reacting to you feeling it, and the, uh, that is just the most powerful form of journalism. And from the beginning of the daily, was there a decision made? To, there's so many little reporting bits. And as a reporter, like, I love hearing the phone ring mm-hmm. and someone pick up the phone. And that the interaction that introduces what the interview is going to be, that's often in there. How did it come about that the sort of slightly on the mm-hmm. edge of the interview stuff ends up yeah. in the all the, the kind show. Of, all the kind of drippings and gristle, like the stuff I like to eat. Yeah. When we started The Daily, there were four people. Um, one of them is Lisa Tobin, who is the executive producer for New York Times Audio. The second is Theo Balcom, who is the senior producer on the team. And then Andy Mills. Their backgrounds are all in public radio. And I think they all came from places where some level of experimentation happened, but 
there were also a set of institutional assumptions around what you could and couldn't do. And when those three brains got together on the daily for the first few months, it was just this incredible pinball machine of like, we can do what we want. No one's going to tell us that you can't hear the phone ring. No one's going to tell us that Maggie Haberman's opening joke and funny line that she wasn't even sure was going to be recorded, like, we can use that if we want to. And the banter and the informality, that could all get in there. They knew what would be powerful as they were hearing it, and they knew that we didn't have to abide by all those old conventions mm -hmm. that governs a lot of, of traditional news and traditional audio. And I had no idea what traditional audio was anyway. So it all sounded really cool to me. And here I have to confess that all of those incredibly innovative things that happened, like that is the work of seasoned audio producers who are innovating on the fly. Mm -hmm. I mean, that in that first iteration of the show, that you know, that was Lisa, Andy, and Theo saying, let's just try this. But there's something about it that's it just reminds you that these are real people right. doing real things. Like a front page story in the Times just it can read like it fell out of the sky. But when someone exactly. picks up the phone or puts you on hold and then there's hold music, like that feels like you're seeing this is how this gets made. Well, that's the most important. I, I think you're you're hitting on a huge issue of why I think people connect to the daily and why I think the old omniscient style of journalism was waiting to be disrupted. I think for a very long time, people and institutions like the New York Times believed for a whole lot of reasons that made a whole lot of sense that the world wanted this kind of institutional voice of God, as I like to call it. And it's the same voice that, that the old kind of 630 news shows gave you. It was Tom Brokaw delivering the news. Mm -hmm. It was Dan Rather telling you about the day. And it was the New York Times in these big, chunky paragraphs telling you what had just happened. And there are a lot of reasons why that, I think, needed to change and, and did change. One is that people questioned the, the authority itself, you know, over time. Um, how can anyone source really be omniscient? And tell me more about how you got that information that you're just telling me in that voice of God voice. And when you hear that phone ring and you hear Matapuzo yelling at some editor nearby or being yelled at by his editor and you realize how busy and hardworking he is and he's just getting off a phone call with some secret source and he's getting on with you and you're hearing how his brain works. There's such a transparency there that I think people craved and there's like a – there's an authenticity. And I think after this presidential election where lots of people asked lots of very reasonable questions about how we know what we know and are we being upfront about our process, that the show serves as a kind of – bomb and antidote to that. It says like, we're grappling with things. Here's what it's really like. Here's what we don't know. I remember a moment where Helene Cooper did this. We asked her um, after the U.S. started firing missiles into Syria after the chemical weapons attack. We mm -hmm. said, we said, Helene, are we, are we at war with Syria now, the United States? She said, I have no idea, which is a really powerful kind of candor that you don't expect from New York Times journalists. I think The Daily is full of, of that kind of grappling and honesty. And I think listeners really appreciate it. I can tell that you like promoting and, and bringing on reporters and you know bringing their work to light, but also right. turning them into kind of like bringing their personalities to the fore. But you're not doing any of your own reporting right now, as far as I know. Is that a comfortable position for you to be in, to, to inhabit the host role entirely? I am not 
like hitting the streets like I did back when I covered City Hall or Walmart and, you know, walk into a room with a, you know, with a notebook. I walk into a conference room with a notebook now. I mean, <laughs> but I am reporting. I mean, we spend hours a day basically reporting on the reporting with the reporters and processing the story and workshopping it. And the team of producers, which is now numbering around, you know, seven or eight on the show, we are spending the whole day dissecting a story. And it's its own very rigorous form of reporting. When you when you take a piece of information, you start turning it inside out, and you ask about its assumptions, and you ask how it could be told in audio. And we use the journalism of the New York Times as the the pillar and the cornerstone and the and the foundation of every story we tell on the daily. But it's in many ways a starting point for a, a longer conversation that probes, you know, what's really happening and. How do we explain it to people? How do we make it compelling when it's called for? How do we make it emotionally satisfying so that you feel the thing that's at the center of the story? And that is as challenging, if not more challenging, than the original reporting for me. Mm -hmm. I think the original reporting going on in our Washington bureau right now and in places where our foreign correspondents are is like is beyond belief complicated. And so a big part of our job is to just find the right way to to honor it by transforming it into audio. And can you t talk a little bit about just the process of mm -hmm. that? Like what time does that start and what does the day look like? Because you're most days you've done like a, some longer stories or mm -hmm. done a magazine story or a, a story that's built up seemingly over more period of time, but you're also dealing with breaking news right. most days or news that has been broken perhaps even during the middle of the day. So what does the day look like for producing a show for tomorrow? The day begins around 9.30. There's a news meeting at the Times every morning, and all the senior editors sit around a table and talk about what's coming. We send someone to that meeting every day, and that is a like a primary document for our day. The email that gets produced from that morning meeting goes out to the entire team. By 10.15, we're sitting in a room, and we're talking through what the most important stories are, what's going to make for the best audio segment, and... We just churned through it. I mean, we're like we're batting around ideas. We're talking through the perfect reporter to tell that story. Are they available? Oh, they're on a cell phone. It's in Africa. Could we send some a producer there? Oh, no, we can't. So we, we're talking through ideas. We're talking through logistics. And we are, once we settle on a story, engaged in this, this race against the clock to figure out how best to tell the story, get the reporter in the place where the highest quality audio is available, ready to talk to us, and and then get our script, which is what we call it, kind of the set of questions that we're going to use in the best possible shape. And we spend, you know, we can spend as much as two, two and a half hours just thinking through the questions we're going to ask someone, or as little as 15 minutes, if that's what we have. If there's some big, you know, legal decision comes down and we've got to get Adam Liptak on the phone, you know, we will, we can turn that around pretty quickly. And here I feel it's necessary to explain. I think there's a potential sense out there that, that my mind really does work that fast and that I can ask the, the, the next question smartly in the middle of an interview on my own. And I have to confess that is, that is not the case. A producer sitting exactly where you are across from me and I during a daily interview are in a Google document. And I have a lot of my own questions. They have a lot of their own questions. And this becomes a live document that we are working in together. And I can't tell you how many times I have been so so engaged and moved 
and lost in a moment in an interview that it never would have occurred to me to ask the incredibly smart question that any one of the producers on the show types in live into the document and says, this is where we go. And that single question can completely transform the arc of the interview. They'll say something really different, perfect, fascinating, surprising, and the interview changes. And this great idea we had for where it's going to go suddenly evolves. And that's the that's the magical kind of alchemy of, I think, what makes The Daily so special. And it just pops up on your screen, so you're seeing it as they're typing it? Oh, yeah. And yeah. reading it as they're typing it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's no way one person could ever manage to do some of the – maybe there's a person out there, it's not me, who could manage to do some of the interviews that I think we've done that are that are so probing and – and searching and emotional, it's a total team effort. The The amount of work that goes into thinking through what we're going to ask these people and then being willing in the moment to change that and alter it and in, in a very kind of improvised way say, this is where the interview needs to go next. Um, but in general, we're recording by around 1.30 or 2. Our sweet spot window is to try to record Anything we're doing for the next day's show, a quick turnaround between 1.32 and 4.35. We don't like to go later than that. Uh, audio is just – it's unspeakably time-consuming to, to turn around 30 minutes of taped audio into some perfect six- or seven-minute segment, especially given the amount of high-quality editing and sound work that we do. But is it all day-to-day? -day? Like some of the ones – I mean, these stories, like a full like 15-minute one, sometimes they just sound like – they sound like This American Life segments. That's what they sound like to me. I remember the the immigration story about the a town in the Midwest where there was a restaurateur mm -hmm. who was then arrested and threatened yeah. with deportation. It was also on the front page yeah, of the Yeah, that Times. was one of our first kind of – that was one of our first big narrative pieces. But was that – is that constructed over days and you're doing the tape over days? That's not all done the recording, in one day. In those segments, in episodes like that, we will have had a conversation with a reporter before they go out, mm -hmm. ideally, mm -hmm. and say, can you help us capture some sound? Reporters have been extremely generous about that. That was Monica Davy in that case who just hit record on her iPhone when she'd go into certain rooms and then helped us get in touch with uh, the friend of the man who had been uh, threatened with deportation, Carlos. His friend Tim was someone she had met in her reporting. And we set up an interview with him and did that interview. That's an example of where we might have a couple of days time to plan that episode. Most of the shows we produce, we turn around today for tomorrow. Increasingly, we're getting to do more narrative storytelling where we can start working on something on a Tuesday or a Wednesday and have it run on a Friday. How do you feel about being this sort of public face? Uh, it's funny because it's radio. Right. I mean, it's audio. And yet, uh, you've been on the Seth Meyers show. Like, there's a BuzzFeed story about you. Like People are very interested in you as a host. Right. And is that something you are excited about or uh, feel trepidation about? I didn't expect that people would ever understand what my face looked like <laughs> because I'm a uh, – this is an audio medium right. and it's not visual. But Twitter is Twitter and I got a photo up there and people who love the show really feel connected to the show and feel connected to – what we're doing into my voice. And so the most shocking part of this for me has been uh, people 
walking up to me and saying something about the show and and knowing who I am. That's been that's been a, an adjustment. Yeah, I didn't expect that to ever happen ever ever ever. And do you worry at all that that would somehow set off your Times colleagues in some way, negative oh, way? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, my Times colleagues and my friends, people who I kind of grew up with here at the Times because I came here when I was 25, they have been bursting my ego for now 12 years uh, and in a very healthy, very healthy way. I, because I have, I started here in the business section and then went to the metro section and then went to the national section and then the campaign department of the Times. I, I've just been around the building a lot and I have a lot of really strong relationships with my colleagues. Uh, I mean, to be a reporter at the New York Times is to have this large, complicated family of colleagues that you are having dinners with, that you're traveling with. I, I've worked – I've co-bylined stories with, you know, with 25 different people here at the Times and mm. I – this will sound like a paid advertisement. I really like my colleagues. I hope they like me. And <laughs> I think we get along really well. And so that has been the basis, I think, for a lot of what makes it easy for me to get people to come on the show. That was true in the beginning. I think then the show became what it became and I could get people I didn't know to come on the show. But it's been really helpful to have been in the newsroom for for 11 years, you know, working side by side with these people. And and so when they come on the show, that, that relationship is real. So, I mean, obviously, if you do anything like this, you at some level, you want people to, to like it. You want people to appreciate it. Yes, you do. But there's something about, like you did a Reddit AMA, like mm -hmm. you did, if you tweet something about the show, like the way people say things like, they're obsessed with the show, like they love it so much. Like you could read that on Reddit from top to bottom and there's no, like, fake news, like the normal stuff that people come at the Times with now that's just part of the discourse. Why do you think that is? I get reliably choked up by one to two emails a week where people write to us about how the daily meets them in their life, where it meets them. You know, like, we get, we get notes about people who will say, it's 5 a.m. and I'm driving down a blackened road and I'm in tears because of this story that you guys just told. Or uh, I have two children. I'm incredibly busy. I listen to The Daily, you know, when I'm making dinner. And I, like, I can't tell you how much it means to me to, to, to have these things broken down and explained to me in a way that's – that I, I feel like I don't have time for in any other way in my life. I don't have time to read the newspaper. I don't have time to watch the – the news and the feedback is it's it's been beyond belief to me as somebody who was a print reporter and never experienced that kind of connection with with the consumer of the product of the news of the storytelling and i just think it all it all goes back to the power and intimacy of being in people's ears that you know wherever they are in that moment in their life you're in their head the story's in their head the sound is in their head and the closest analogy I can think of to why the daily and audio makes you feel the connectedness that I think it does is how emotional and powerful it is to listen to your favorite music on your iPhone because that's how I think about it. And when, I, when, I, when I try to think about uh, the experience it approximates sometimes listening to, to great audio, it's listening to great audio. It's listening to your favorite piece of music in the car. It's like this powerful one-on-one -on -one thing going on between you and the music. I think that's 
that's something that just can't be replicated outside of like earbuds in your ear or sound coming out of a speaker. It's just a totally unique medium. So then my last question is relative to that, that audience that seems to really have connected with the show and seems to also be growing and large. It's one of the most popular podcasts. Do you feel a different responsibility in this role to, towards those people than say you, you did as a print reporter in the past? To the listener. Yeah. Oh yeah, I do. I feel a duty to be really prepared for the interviews we do and really invested in them and really like turned on to them. I mean, we, we have a phrase we use about sort of being really dialed into a, to an interview and and if you're not, listeners can tell. There's just like – it's a very honest medium. And if I'm talking to somebody and I'm not engaged, people are totally going to hear it. You're going to totally tell. Oh, Michael's tired. I mean people can tell when I have a cold, which I do right now. And you hear from them? Yeah. Yeah. Are you coming down with a cold? People's disappointment when it arises with something we've done is the disappointment of a family member, uh, you know, who's been who feels for some reason they've been let down or they didn't like something because they think they understand your taste, and they do because they hear it every day. And so, I consume all of that feedback really carefully, and I feel like it's my job, and I think everybody on the daily team feels this way to make sure that every segment feels like we are deeply engaged, that we've asked all the right questions. Do you think the show works in a news environment that's not as crazy as the one right now? That's a, that is maybe the question of the post-Trump era. <laughs> but in the I, – I mean, I mean this. In the, in the – this president coincided with this show in a very powerful way. This moment in American civic life began on January 20th, arguably, at the inauguration. The Daily started on February 1st. I think – the world was looking for many ways of processing this presidency and this massive change in, in kind of American life. And the daily happened to be one of them. And the timing was extraordinary. And we have tried to make sense of, of this presidency and what it means for, for government and for public life, for journalism. And every time we've wondered whether the news flow was going to quiet, it hasn't. It could happen. But I don't foresee it happening for the next three years plus. So I think we're going to have a lot of stories to tell. Well, I'm going to let you go make the next show because I, I don't want all those fans angry at me. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for being on the show. I Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to Michael Barbaro for taking out the time in an incredibly busy daily podcasting schedule to speak to me. Thanks to Samantha Hennig, the brilliant editorial director for audio at the New York Times, for allowing that interview to happen, also for marrying me. Thank you to Courtney Harrell, our editor, and to our intern, Angela Velez. Thanks to my co-host, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. And as always, MailChimp. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. 
Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.